Hey, do you guys know there's no such thing as atheists? Well, me neither, but that's what Duck Dynasty Cy Robertson thinks, so let's see exactly what he has to say about it. Okay. A lot. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, I don't believe there's no such thing as an atheist. That's an interesting statement. No, no, I'm statement. serious. You know, because there's too much, there's too much documentation, okay? Our calendars are based on Jesus Christ. Okay, whether you believe in him or not, mm -hmm. every time you sign your, your calendar, you write down the day's date, you're saying he's here. Okay, that's documented. Okay, so, you know, like I said, I don't believe there is any atheist, okay? Because the first thing, if you get in a serious bind, the first thing you're going to do is look around and say, oh, please help me. <laughs> okay, because, hey, everything is out of your control. Right. They say okay. there's no atheists in the foxhole. Yeah. Well, actually, there are atheists in foxholes. Does the military still dig foxholes? I don't know. But figuratively speaking, at least, there's definitely atheists on the battlefield. And at least one of them is a listener of this show. At least I hope he's still listening. And if anyone's in doubt, just visit militaryatheist.org, the Military Association of Atheists and Freethinkers. I'm usually not this blunt, but Cy Robertson was demonstrating some epic-level stupidity. Uh, I didn't know he was a Vietnam vet, though. Uh, I respect that about him, at least. But before I give my breakdown of his comments, or continue giving my breakdown of his comments, I'll quickly read a bit from the article where I found this clip. And I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, by the way. Just felt like jumping right in for some reason this week. And this article is from one of my favorite sources, uh, the Huff Post, and it's by Ed Mazza. And it's entitled, Cy Robertson, Duck Dynasty Star Says Atheists Don't Exist. There's no such thing as an atheist, according to one of the stars of the reality TV show Duck Dynasty. Cy Robertson, known to fans of the show as Uncle Cy, told the Christian Post that anyone who uses the date is acknowledging Jesus. There's no such thing as an atheist, Robertson told the website. I'm serious because there's too much documentation. Our calendars are based on Jesus Christ. Whether you believe in him or not, every time you sign your calendar, you add down the day's date. You're saying he's here, okay? That's documented. While the widely used Gregorian calendar introduced by Pope Gregory the 13th in 1582 uses years based on the approximate birth of Jesus Christ, the names of many of the months and days of the week retain their pagan origins. March, for example, is named for Mars, the Roman god of war. Tuesday is based on, and here they're spelling it T-U or, or T-I-W, the Germanic god of war. And I think they're probably referencing Tyr, T-Y-R, and those are other acceptable spellings, I believe. I always thought Tyr was kind of the god of justice. And if I remember, uh, I'm a bit of a mythology geek. I think he lost one of his hands to the uh, Fenris wolf, or also known as Fenrir. Um, but anyway, Robertson, a Vietnam War veteran, also cited a variation of the maxim, there are no atheists in foxholes. Actually, I think it was the um, interviewer who brought that up. Oh, maybe uh, Cy did in a way, too, because it makes the point here. Claiming that people turn to faith when they are in trouble. If you get in a serious bind, the first thing you'll do is say, God, please help me, Robertson told the website. Robertson is promoting the film Faith of Our Fathers, which is about two men who served in the Vietnam War, one of whom is devout while the other is a skeptic. Skeptics apparently do exist. There's a lot of skeptics, Robertson said. 
But yeah, I'm glad the writer mentioned the pagan origins of our week and month names, because that's exactly what I was thinking when I first heard uh, these comments. I was like, oh, you want to play that game? I guess we're all pagan then. From an early age, I've had a love affair with mythology, fantasy, ancient religion, things like that. And for uh, a long time, I was really into uh, Norse mythology. And I remember being blown away when I first found out that that our days of the week, at least uh, at least four of them are named after Norse gods. Tuesday is Tyr, as uh, was mentioned. Wednesday is Woden or uh, Wotan or Odin, um, the Germanic slash uh, Scandinavian patriarchal deity, uh, probably analogous to Zeus in a sense. Zeus rules over Olympus, Odin rules over Asgard, and uh, the famous hall known as Valhalla. Anyone who's recently seen Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> all those references to Valhalla probably uh, come to mind. Thursday is Thor's day. Friday is Frigg or Frigga's day. Frigg was the, uh, the wife of Odin and the uh, mother of Thor, I believe. And I remember when I was in high school, I took a mythology class as an elective. And surprisingly, I kind of, I don't know if I bombed it, but I didn't do very well. And I think it's because I already had intimate knowledge about world mythology going in. And maybe it was like a rebellious thing, but I wanted to hang on to my own knowledge. I wasn't too interested in the teacher's take on myths I was already very aware of. And I didn't get along with the uh, teacher all that well. And I think actually one of my friends at the time um, had the teacher for a different class, and he got in trouble for calling the teacher to his face a red-faced mother, <clears throat> and I'll just censor myself, but... <laughs> But anyway, um, I remember the, the teacher used to have this ongoing joke where he'd talk about like the three main Norse deities, and he'd say their names all in quick succession, Odin, Friggin, Thor, because it sounded like he was saying Friggin, and he thought that was like a riot. Uh, but anyway, many of you are probably already aware that most of our major quote-unquote Christian holidays have pagan roots or that they have pagan traditions associated with them. I don't know if people would necessarily consider uh, Halloween a Christian holiday, but it is All Hallows' Eve. It's the uh, day before All Saints' Day, and it's thought to borrow strongly from the ancient Celtic Samhain, where the Celts celebrated the coming of the new year, which for them was uh, November. And they celebrated with bonfires and masks and sacrifices and all these beliefs about the spirits being able to temporarily pass into our world and vice versa. Um, Christmas, of course. I mean, no one knows exactly when Jesus was born, but the winter solstice was already a popular time for um, pagan celebrations. It's thought that December 25th was the birthday of the pagan god Mithras or, or Mithra, or at the least it was a Mithraic feast day. And of course, the evergreens, which we see at Christmas, uh, evergreens are an ancient symbol of renewal and of eternal life. Um, 
and evergreen plants and trees were venerated by ancient civilizations, most notably probably the Germanic and Scandinavian peoples, maybe the Celts too, I think. Uh, but I think even all the way back to ancient Egypt, there are certain plants, uh, etc., that were perennially green, that were celebrated as symbols of, uh, of life or eternal life. Easter is quite possibly named for a pagan uh, Germanic goddess, I believe. The bunny uh, or hares, eggs, these are ancient symbols of fertility and rebirth. Um, yeah, so the days of the months, the weeks, our holidays, and even the founding fathers were heavily influenced by ancient classical civilization, by the Romans and the Greeks. And we can see that in our political structure, and we can even see that with our uh, political architecture. Now, I was recently listening back to the episode I did, not like I love hearing the sound of my own voice, which maybe I do, or I love listening to myself talk, uh, but I'm also very critical of myself, so um, I'm very neurotic, and sometimes I'll listen back to episodes after I record them or listen to old episodes just to try to keep a bead on uh, how I'm doing. And I recently listened back to the episode I did on the Founding Fathers, and it dealt with the misconception that they were these deeply Christian men who founded a deeply Christian nation. And I went into how most of the Founding Fathers were products of the Enlightenment. Uh, these were very well-educated men. These were men who were, at best, a lot of them deists. Um, free thinkers, and even the ones who were quote-unquote Christian, like Adams and Washington, were not literally believing Christians, uh, like when we think of Christian fundamentalists today. Washington, for instance, I think may have been a theistic rationalist, and uh, I forget the two different sects he was a member of. I think one of them was the uh, Episcopalian Church, but theistic rationalists, and uh the Episcopalianism of the day was completely compatible with this, um, rejected some of the supernatural claims of Christianity, including some real biggies like the, uh, the Trinity, uh, the virgin birth, uh, and sometimes even the divinity of Christ himself. And like I said, uh, the founding fathers were really influenced by the classics, uh, classic works of literature and philosophy from ancient Greece and Rome. Much of the architecture in Washington is clearly influenced by uh, Greco-Roman um, architecture. And we've probably all seen the statues and paintings that sometimes depict uh, leaders like Washington looking like Roman leaders or even Roman deities. And even look at our modern politics. Our democracy might be different than the evolving democracy of the ancient Greeks, but we're, but the founding fathers were ov obviously influenced by uh, the concept of Greek democracy. We have a Senate like the ancient Romans had a Senate, etc., uh, etc. Et so, so you want to play that game? You think that because we follow a certain calendar system, that means atheists don't exist and we're all Christians. Well, if you go by the names of the week, the names of the month, the Greco-Roman influence on the Founding Fathers, the pagan nature of our, of our uh, holidays, 
maybe we're all pagans, which would be cool with me. Uh, I don't believe in the supernatural. I'm a non-believer, so I don't believe in any deity or deities, plural. Um, but I think paganism's pretty cool. Yeah, so I was trying to look up some specific examples of the uh, kind of pagan artwork in the capital that I was uh, mentioning. And there's a famous statue of Washington. If I do a YouTube version of this uh, episode, I'll include the picture. Um, I think that was in the rotunda. And it was of a bare-chested George Washington looking much like a deity. uh, Bare-chested with a kind of toga from the waist down, holding a sword with one hand raised, very stern look on his face. And I believe it was directly modeled after a statue of Zeus. And there's also a fresco in the rotunda known as the apotheosis of Washington. And apotheosis is one of my favorite words, which might be strange for a non-believer, but it basically means the process of becoming a god, of transitioning from mortal to divine apotheosis. And this is a little bit of what Wikipedia has to say. The apotheosis of Washington is the fresco painted by Greek-Italian artist Constantino Brumidi in 1865. Invisible through the oculus of the dome in the rotunda of the United States Capitol building, the fresco is suspended 180 feet above the rotunda floor and covers an area of 4,664 square feet. The figures painted are up to 15 feet tall. See, the dome was completed in 1863, and Brumidi painted it over the course of 11 months at the end of the Civil War. He was paid for $40,000. Okay. Would have been closer to like 600000 in uh, today's money. The apotheosis of Washington depicts George Washington sitting amongst the heavens in an exalted manner, or in literal terms, ascending and becoming a god, apotheosis. Washington, the first U.S. president and commander-in-chief of the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War, is allegorically represented surrounded by figures from classical mythology. And it goes on and on. Um, Let's see. Washington is draped in purple, a royal color with a rainbow arc at his feet or arch, flanked by the goddess Victoria, draped in green using a horn to his left, and the goddess of liberty to his right. Liberty wears a red Phrygian cap, symbolizing emancipation from a Roman tradition where sons leaving the home and or slaves being emancipated would be given a red cap. She holds a fasces in her right hand and an open book in the other. And I think the fasces was an ancient Roman a symbol. It was usually seen as a bundle of sticks or wooden rods with an axe in the middle. And I think it symbolized Roman power or something like that. Here's a little background on that statue. It was made in 1840 by Horatio Greenow, perhaps, or Greenaw, G-R-E-E-N-O-U-G-H. And it was commissioned for the centennial of U.S. President George Washington's birth, February 22nd, 1732. I guess it's entitled Enthroned Washington. And it was based on Phidias's great statue of Zeus Olympios, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and which was destroyed in late antiquity. So it's kind of funny in a way how much more accepting and embracing uh, the founding fathers were of enlightenment values, of paganism, of the symbolism of uh, antiquity than, say, modern right-wing Christians are. And, you know, and they usually venerate these men. It's kind of wild. 
and maybe this will sound horribly biased, but you know, the, the older I, it's, I think I've said in the show before, when I was younger, I used to find American history, and I say this with some sense of shame or embarrassment, boring. I always liked ancient history because those cultures and religions were so far removed from our own that there really seemed to be something exotic and transporting about them. And it was as if uh, early American history just seemed too recent to interest me in a way. But the older I get, the more aware of politics I get, etc., the more my interest in early American history grows. And the more I learn about the founding fathers, the more I come to a conclusion that they were more like us. They were more like the secularists, the free thinkers, the non-believers, men and women of reason, people who value scientific advancement and enlightenment values. And when I read about these noble free thinkers who founded our country, and of course I don't mean to seem as if I'm figuratively deifying uh, them because there are some stains on our country's history too, um, the legacy of slavery, and unfortunately many of the founding fathers were actually slave owners. Even if you read their words, it seems like some of them realized the moral problem of slavery, and yet many of them still own slaves. Um, But anyway, in regard to their philosophy and their uh, values, when I read about these noble figures, they don't really remind me of modern right-wing Christians at all. In a way, kind of bizarrely, right-wing Christians actually seem more old-fashioned than the Founding Fathers. But anyway, before I jump to the next story, I wanted to stop and touch on one of last week's topics, specifically euthanasia and that controversial Belgian case of the 24-year-old woman with severe depression who, I guess, was given the okay to be uh, euthanized. And I had explained in detail, even bringing up my own embarrassing struggle with depression. Uh, Maybe I shouldn't consider it uh, embarrassing. That's probably sending the wrong message. I don't think people should be made to feel embarrassed or stigmatized by mood disorders or mental illness. I think that's uh, a big part of the problem. People feel compelled to kind of keep that stuff in the closet. And I think that festering sense of guilt or shame that people with mental illness or mood disorders feel obviously can only serve to worsen their condition. Um, But I gave a bunch of reasons why I thought it's immoral to euthanize someone simply because of a mood disorder or because of depression specifically, especially a young person, 24 years old, whose views of the world probably haven't finished forming yet, who still has maturing to do, who's just starting out in life. And if you're a believer and you're listening, you might find my choice of the word immoral, somewhat ironic, but I'm not going to go off on a whole tangent about atheism and morality and how I believe that morality has evolutionary roots. I'm not going to go in that whole thing right now. I've spoken about it a lot in the past, but I do. I personally think it's immoral 
euthanizing a, a young person because of a mood disorder. And I don't mean the trivial, trivialized depression by saying that. And as I mentioned, I, I wrestle with depression myself, and I understand uh, how horrible it can be. Uh, and I'm not going to out a specific listener, but th- there's a listener of the show who I'm really friendly with, and I think they took offense to me comparing my own struggle with depression with people who are institutionalized, perhaps because their depression is so severe that they can't even function. And I apologize if uh, it came off that way. And I wasn't trying to compare my experience with hers and say that they're equal. I was trying to say that I don't take the subject of depression lightly or glibly. And to some degree, at least, I understand how horrible it can be, even if this woman's depression perhaps is far worse than mine ever was. I was just trying to say that I understand to some degree as far as I can. Um, And I'm not someone who's completely out of touch on the topic. But something that occurred to me in the interim, in between recording that show and now, is one thing I neglected to mention, is that one of the symptoms, one of the characteristic defining symptoms of depression, is a feeling of hopelessness, a feeling that things are never going to get better. And when you're in that state of mind, and that's your worldview, that seems like a very dangerous and irresponsible time to give someone the choice of deciding whether they want to live or not. One of the very symptoms is a feeling that things are never going to get better. You know, So the person's not in their right mind to decide if they want to live or not. And I know, I know a person's decision about what they want or, or don't want to do with their own body is supposed to be sacrosanct. And you can't keep the person institutionalized forever. You have to, they, at some point, even if treatment isn't successful, they have to be given their freedom. You can't keep someone locked up forever just because they're depressed or want to kill themselves. Um, but that doesn't mean you have the right to put them down like a sick dog either. And now I'll have to resist the temptation to go off on animals and euthanasia and my love of animals and animal rights, etc. Uh, <laughs> one time I had to put a dog down. It was the Yorkshire Terrier. I, I talked about this on the show that I, I grew up with. Um, my parents got that dog when I was in my early teens, I think. And it lived to be about 19 or 20. And I was always very against As a little kid, I was very against euthanasia for animals. I thought it was very mean and cruel. And I thought, they don't do that to people when they're sick, as far as I knew as a kid. I'm like, why do it to a dog, you know? But um, our Yorkshire Terrier was ancient. And one morning, he was making these horrible, agonized kind of yodels and uh, howls. And his body was finally giving out, and he literally couldn't get out of bed couldn't even walk anymore and all he could do is make these agonized sounds and I had to take him to be put down and I absolutely think it was the right thing to do as much as I love animals actually because I love animals and because I loved that dog with all my heart the dog was just at the end of the line uh was it uh seven years for every dog year or something like that so And this dog was like 19, maybe going on 20. So this dog was absolutely ancient and its body was failing. It was basically like um, an elderly person who was on their deathbed and couldn't even function anymore. So, but anyway, yeah, I think that a person's right to what they want to do with their body should be considered 
considered sacrosanct. But a young person, a 24-year-old who's suffering from depression, and like I said, one of the characteristic symptoms is a feeling of hopelessness. That seems like a really wrong and irresponsible time to hand someone the decision if they want to continue living or not. And, and uh, I think John Idarola, who from the Young Turks, who I said I disagreed with strongly. One good point, the only point that I uh, agreed with or I thought had some merit that he made because he was pro giving people in this type of situation the decision to decide if they want to continue living or not. He made the point that, well, if the person was allowed to be clinically euthanized, it might be a lot less messy or painful than if they attempted to jump off a building, slit their wrist, take pills or whatever. And I can kind of see the merit in that view a little that if the person is hell-bent on killing themselves and they're going to do it no matter what, maybe it's more humane, I guess, to help them do it in a painless way. But still, I think in that situation, you have to err on the side of life. I think even that motive is kind of misguided, that you want to make sure the person, if, if they're hell-bent on doing it, that at least they don't do it in a way that's going to cause suffering for themselves. And, as, and if someone's hell-bent on killing themselves, you have to release them from the hospital at some time, and you know most likely they're probably going to succeed at some point. I still think it's better to at least, like I said, err on the side of life. And hope that at least there's some chance that they may approve, that they may improve in the interim, or that some treatment might prove successful in the interim. And in a way, it's probably better. This sounds odd, but for society as a whole, if the person is allowed to shoot themselves in the head or drift off to uh, never-ending sleep by taking uh, too many pills than to allow a doctor or the state to put the person to sleep like a sick animal, because that sends the message that life is just that much more disposable. Hey, you're a young person wrestling with a horrible mood disorder. Hey, you can always snuff out the light and wear behind you. We'll help you do it. I mean, it, it, it really is tough. There's a reason why the subject is controversial, because it brings up a lot of legitimate questions about whether a person should have the right to kill themselves, uh, whether it's more humane to help a person kill themselves or to, to kill his or herself or to uh, allow them to go off and do it on their own in a way that might be more painful or um, less quick or something like that. But obviously, you can tell from everything I just said, I'm, I'm still against it. But this is the second week in a row that I've spoken about this, so I'll just uh, leave that be for now and move on to another news story. Oh, I hate to do this to you guys, but this is what happens when you work without a script. Uh, I want to, before I move on to the next news story, I want to kind of jump backwards for a moment to that story about Cy Robertson, because he touched on another thing that I think needs to be discussed. Another thing he tried to put forth as proof of God, or that there are no atheists and everyone believes in God, is that when you're frightened or something bad happens, you kind of instinctively say, please help me, or you call out to God or something like that. And I think, uh, in fairness, he's describing 
a real phenomenon, a real kind of psychological phenomenon, but it's not proof of the existence of a higher power or some patriarchal creator god or something like that. And I've talked about this on the show before. I think I did, I think it might have been during an episode I called Atheism and the Transcendent, or I might have done a separate episode called Hidden Hands. But I I talked about this is something that just can't be swept under the rug. This is a real psychological phenomenon. When we are afraid, when we're in a car and all of a sudden we realize we're about to hit another car, uh, (laughs) when we realize something really bad is about to happen, Uh, when we find ourselves in a real bind or whatever it is, as uh, Cy Robertson put it, we do kind of, uh, our minds cry out, help me, you know, or something like that. And I've spoken about how, you know, even I do this, and I've used the example of maybe I'm driving home from a party, and uh, I'm on the highway, and I start hearing a fishy sound from my car, or I start feeling a little turbulence, like maybe one of my tires is going or something. And I'm like, oh, please just let me get home in one piece, or, you know, something like that. And so what is this? What is this thing that we're pleading with for help, or that our minds are crying out to? And I really love this topic. It absolutely fascinates me. And I think it has something to do with the concept of the other. You know, sometimes the other is used to describe like an enemy group, an outgroup. <laughs> you know, to talk about the way uh, one group of people can kind of tribalistically demonize another group of people. But that's not the way I'm using the phrase the other. It can also be used in spiritual or theological or philosophical terms to refer to a presence other than your quote-unquote self. And I think, and this is just me kind of BSing and riffing and uh, thinking out loud, but I think this could have something to do with the development of religion or spirituality or the concept of gods. You know, I think that we, or most of us, if your neurological equipment is intact, Most of us know what that experience of the other is like, this feeling of being plugged into something bigger than yourself. A lot of religions or spiritual uh, schools, whether it be Christian mysticism, like of uh, Meister Eckhart or something like that, or whether we're talking about Muslim uh, Sufism or especially Eastern religions like Buddhism and uh, Zen, which is a form of Buddhism. There's this idea of you kind of merge with the divine as the self dissolves, you know, the dissolution of the ego, as they call it. In those moments where the self kind of melts away and we become one, with the universe or nature or whatever, that's when you really experience divinity. That's when you become one with the other. And of course, certain practices and drugs can help with this. And this is one of the reasons why um, Sam Harris is one of my favorite atheists, or, you know, a- atheist thinkers or intellectuals. To be honest with you, I'm not even all that concerned with what Sam Harris has to say about 
Islam. <laughs> to some degree, I, st- I try to stay a little out of that fight, although I, I think he does make some good points regarding that stuff, although politically incorrect, uh, which gets him into a, a lot of trouble. And uh, I don't think we should ever let political correctness keep us from speaking uh, what we see as the truth. But anyway, what I really love about Sam Harris is how he's a non-believer who, like myself, is fascinated by quote-unquote spirituality, consciousness, methods of altering consciousness, the exploration of consciousness, all that stuff. So I think things like meditation, psychedelic drugs, these are things which help people kind of minimize the ego and maximize that sense of oneness. And Sam Harris is also the only other non-believer I've ever heard mention uh, Terrence McKenna. (laughs) So yeah, I I love Sam Harris mostly for... um, that aspect of him, his interest in uh, consciousness exploration, etc. Because you don't hear a lot of atheists talking about that stuff. I think he's a good proponent of how you can still be quote-unquote spiritual and be a non-believer. And a lot of non-believers say dismissively, I don't even know what the word spiritual means. To me, it's a placeholder. It simply refers to anything that makes one feel transcendent or um, that lifts someone out of the mundane. Uh, You know, art, as Christopher Hitchens used to talk about, art, landscape, sacred music, poetry. This is all stuff that can kind of lift us out of our normal state of consciousness, you know, and that can induce ecstasy and transport us. But of course, you know, I'm kind of a materialist, not kind of, um, But I I don't know 100%, but I tend to think that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. And when the brain goes, unfortunately, we go, you know. Maybe it's otherwise, but I'm a non-believer, I'm a skeptic, uh, I'm a rationalist, so that's the side that I lean towards. And that's where the evidence seems to point, in my opinion, as well. But there is this sense of the other, and... uh, I've spoken about this on the show before, but reminds me of, um, I forget which book it is exactly. Maybe if one of uh, my listeners out there recognizes what I'm talking about, they can uh, tweet me or leave a Facebook post uh, reminding me which book it is. But in one of Richard Dawkins' books, there's a section called Binker, and uh, there's this children's poem called Binker, and it kind of talks about the relationship between a young child and their imaginary friend. And it's kind of an airy poem in a way, because I think, and this is probably why Dawkins uses it, it really hints at that sense of the other within us. That's almost within our own heads. You know, there's there's us, our self-awareness, but sometimes there's also this feeling that there's something else, too. You know, but I think when you're young and you're still forming your perception of reality and that dividing line between fantasy and reality is still kind of blurry, you can almost mistake these certain modes of consciousness for the existence of an other. And that's what Dawkins talks about. And he talks about the imaginary friend of childhood as um, perhaps, and I think this is just 
uh, you know, a, high, a kind of loose hypothesis on his part, or theory, not theory in the scientific usage, but in the vernacular. Kind of just a working theory that the way people believe in and experience God might be a similar phenomenon as to the phenomenon of the child's imaginary friend, this sense that there's something else. Yeah, but so in the poem, the kids, it's told from the um, point of view of the child, the kid's saying, you know, mommy's this, daddy's that. Um, I'm paraphrasing. But there's kind of a, this refrain, Binker's always there. And uh, Binker's always there, kind of the way God's always there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm kind of an odd duck. Well, I'm an odd duck in a lot of ways, but uh, in the sense that, and this probably isn't that abnormal. I think if you talk to a lot of non-believers, you'll find that they're like this too. There's this... Um, ugly stereotype that non-believers don't have a quote-unquote spiritual side or that they lack emotional or creative depth or something like that. But I've always been fascinated and enamored with all things spiritual, all things that have to do with religion. Not a day goes by that I don't, to some degree, experience some kind of transcendent moment or a moment that people might consider, you know, being in the presence of the other or something. It could be you're just outside and the sunlight's just right, enough serotonin pumping in your head, the leaves are stirring in the breeze, the color of the flowers, you know, or, or whatever, and you just feel the self melt away and you feel this kind of euphoric bliss and this feeling that you're plugged into something more and that you are in the presence of the other or something like that. Yeah, I think it might have been during the uh, episode I did a long time ago on Eben Alexander when his book had just come out and it was a bestseller. He was all the rage. And I kind of tried to uh, burst the bubble a little by giving my rational, down-to-earth, skeptical take on Eben Alexander's story. And I got kind of attacked in the YouTube comment section. Not people weren't like cursing at me or YouTubers could be a lot more mean than this. It wasn't that bad. But I was attacked in the sense that um, I had new agers, religious types, just people who want to believe that near-death experiences are real, saying things like, non-believers just don't get spirituality or that they're missing something and they're not able to experience these things. And so I just defended myself and went right back at them. And I said how, you know, since I, I, I was, you know, since I was a kid, since I was in my early teens, I've been writing poetry and music. I'm an artist. I'm someone who studied Eastern philosophy, someone who's fascinated by religion and spiritual practices, and how not a day goes by that I don't experience some of these things that people deem spiritual. I'm just honest and rational enough to admit that I can't take these things as concrete evidence for a god or an afterlife. And one of the ways I keep myself in check if I have one of those moments that Cy Robertson's talking about, maybe I'm in a car and I'm a afraid it's going to break down or something. And uh, I noticed myself go, oh, you know, whatever the heck it is, just let me get home safely. And I'm, you know, pleading to something. Is that, well, even if I get home safely, which in most cases, you know, is what happens. Um, okay, well, good for me. What about the person on the other side of the highway who either broke down at best or worst case scenario 
ended up dying in some horrific automobile accident. Where were their hidden hands? If I'm worrying about X, Y, or Z happening to me, and I make it through whatever crisis it is, all right, bully for me. What about all the people that got wiped away in a tsunami? Or what about all the children who starved to death in third world every day? Um, Or the babies born with horrible birth defects? Or the people, you know, murdered by psychopaths? Or or like Christopher Hitchens used to talk about that really ugly, hopefully I don't depress you guys. I tried not to stay as long on that story about euthanasia and and depression this time. Like Christopher Hitchens used to talk about that horrible case about uh, there was a, a father in Germany a few years back who had kept his daughter in a basement as a sex slave all the way up into adulthood to the point where I think he fathered children with her. And then I think he might have abused the child or children, plural. Uh, and Christopher Hitchens used to talk about that case. And he was like, I bet she was pleading for God for some kind of divine intervention. Where was her help? You know, all those years, all those decades. Um, and probably similar to an America in America here. I forget the name of the monster. He's dead now. I think he committed suicide in prison or so they say. But there was this guy who kept um, this middle-aged guy who kept three young women as basically sex slaves and punching bags or whatever. He to- he tortured them. He raped them on a regular basis, demeaned them, debased them, kept them as slaves in his house for like a decade or more. Uh, ended up impregnating uh, one of them, made one of the girls help the pregnant one give birth and said, if the baby doesn't make it, I'll kill you or whatever. But just awful stuff. He was like tying them up. He was like chaining or tying them to uh, the walls, making them live in filth. Um, Any debased thing you can think of doing to another human being, he basically did to these women. And, you know, where were there? hidden hands. Eventually, help came for them in the form of fellow human beings uh, who realized that something wasn't quite right in the bravery of one of the girls who managed to make it outside. But their help took over a decade, you know, to to, uh, manifest or whatever. And some people might say, well, God didn't punish those women. Bad people did. But of course, it's an old chestnut, but it's a fair one. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, basically omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, he could help but doesn't, or his help is arbitrary. You know what I mean? Um, but it's not so easily dismissed in the case of natural disasters. Like I said, you know, I think there's pr- it's probably natural to feel a little smug or special. Like if you make it through a crisis, you say, oh, well, someone's looking out for me, you know? <laughs> but like I said, you know, you use some empathy. What about the person who didn't make it home all right and died on the highway? What about the people who en masse are wiped out in natural disasters? Maybe you get a clean bill of health. Maybe the next guy gets cancer. So where are the hidden hands at work and all that? And I think the best I've heard people come up with for natural disasters, like Christian apologists, is saying something like, well, maybe physically speaking, this is the only world that could be made. This is the way God had to make the world with tectonic plates and <laughs> this and that. And so natural disasters are unavoidable. Once again, he's God. <laughs> if he exists, <laughs> he could probably create any type of world. 
Or then they might come up with the old offensive chestnut that it's uh, this is a fallen world and of course we all deserve it because two people ate the wrong kind of fruit, which uh, most likely wasn't an apple as uh, folklore and tradition uh, implies. Um, at, well, of course, I don't believe Adam and Eve actually existed, but I, I don't think there were apples in that part of the, uh, you know, in the ancient Mideast at that time, it, it, in that part, and most likely would have been, um, I think people speculate it could have been like a, um, could have been like a pomegranate or a uh, fig or something like that, but there's some play on words involved too, uh, one theory goes, that the Ancient Latin words for apple and evil are very similar, so that could have uh, led to it as well. In fact, I think they might be the same word, just uh, one has a short vowel, one has a long vowel. I think it's malum. But anyway, and, and enough about that. I've digressed quite a bit. This was supposed to be a relatively short show, and as I'm recording before editing, I'm already an hour and ten minutes in. So I had like four or five news stories. Maybe I'll just do one more. Let's see, I'll look through the news stories uh, that I uh, jotted down. Two British schoolgirls who ran away to Syria, now married to ISIS, Cy Robertson, I covered that. Biased ideas in Texas curriculum standards. Indiana's Church of Cannabis. <laughs> the Science of Race Revisited. Um, ooh, I'm kind of, it's a toss-up between the Science of Race Revisited and Texas curriculum standards. Um, maybe I'll go... Uh, in the grand scheme of things, the science of race story might be more important. And this story is by David Freeman. Uh, it's a HuffPost story, of course. Let's see. There's no doubt that different groups of people can look very different from one another, but to contemporary anthropologists and sociologists, the notion that there are distinct races of human beings, each with its own specific attributes, doesn't make much sense. The same goes for biologists like Stanford University's Dr. Marcus Feldman, who has done pioneering research on the difference between human populations. Recently, HuffPost Science posed several questions about race and racism to Feldman. Here, lightly edited are his answers. Does the concept of race have any scientific validity or have biologists discard the term? Many biologists have replaced the term race with continental ancestry. This is because such a large fraction of the world has ancestry in more than one continent. The result is hyphenated nomenclature, which attempts to specify which continents are represented in one's ancestry. For example, our president is as European in his ancestry as he is African. It is arbitrary which of these an observer chooses to emphasize. Obama's opponents overtly and by implication denigrate him because of his African ancestry, but he is equally European. How did the concept of race originate? Probably from Aristotle's predilection with classification, but more recently with German physician Johann Friedrich Blumenbach's classification in 1755 of the five human races. How do biologists today view race and how has that view changed in recent years? Biologists generally agree that with enough data on DNA, it is possible to say that someone's ancestry is more likely to include representation from a given set of continents, genes contributing to phenotypes that are recognized through our senses, for example, sight or touch, as defining differences between people from different continents, commonly referred to as races, or from different populations comprise a small proportion of the human genome. 
perhaps 10% to 15%. This is the meaning of Lewontin's 1972 paper and subsequent analysis, how do biologists explain the difference between different populations of humans? And that uh, last paragraph, by the way, just went right over my head. I don't think it actually explained that much uh, regarding how modern uh, scientists view race and, and whether it's a valid concept, which I, I really do not like the uh, concept of race. I think it's scientifically flawed, and uh, I also think it's just plain divisive. But anyway, back to uh, how the biologists explain the differences between different populations. It depends what differences are referred to. Skin color differences, for example, may be the result of the action of 40 genes. Height might involve several hundred genes. On one hand, some differences may be due to differences in the founding size of a population. For example, the relatively high frequency of some genetic diseases in Ashkenazi Jews could reflect a small original population in Eastern Europe. Other differences could be due to natural selection. For example, tolerance of low oxygen pressure in Tibetans and Andean populations. Other differences are obviously cultural. For example, the preference of some Middle Eastern and South Asian populations to marry their cousins results in higher rates of genetic disorders in those populations than in other populations. So why did we evolve to look so different from one another? Some genes are involved in phenotypic differences that are detectable by the naked eye, and some are involved in the musculature-related phenomena. Many people focus on these, ignoring the vast majority of genes whose differences are insignificant. How much does DNA differ from one population to another? 80% to 90% of genetic variation is within populations, so the fraction between populations is very small. Let me see, I'll just scan some of these other questions. Do any non-human animals exhibit races? Biologists use the term race to describe variants of species that exhibit phenotypic differences over geographical ranges. Uh, the term gets confused with subspecies and other names. Dobzhansky referred to fruit fly races, and others use the term for populations that have chromosomal differences but can still mate successfully. It is not clear what the exact criteria for such races are. Are humans hardwired to be suspicious of those who look different from ourselves? Hardwired is generally a synonym for genetically determined. Four-leggedness in dogs as opposed to two-leggedness in humans is, is probably genetic, but there is no evidence that I would accept xenophobia as genetic. Are humans starting to look more like one another? As migration increases around the world, features that might previously have allowed our eyes to classify people will undoubtedly become blurred. Then the small fraction of DNA differences that differ between populations will become even smaller. And finally, here's a, uh, this is kind of the question I was looking for. So from a biological standpoint, it doesn't seem to make much sense to use the term race. Should we stop talking about race and racism in everyday life? I think race is outdated and often pejorative, but racism is still alive, unfortunately. I definitely agree with that. Not decreasing. I think we must remain on the alert for racism and have ready responses to it when it rears its ugly head. That last paragraph would have done it for me. I could have skipped over everything else. Uh, that's basically my viewpoint, too. While I'm at it, I might as well just touch on that Texas curriculum story as well. This story is by Rebecca Klein, also the Huffington Post. <laughs> There's definitely a pattern here. These biased ideas are presented as facts in Texas curriculum standards. And this story is from 2014. Why the heck was it on the front page of the Huffington Post? And I think it was up there for like two days or something. 
The Texas Board of Education is under renewed scrutiny as kids gear up to go back to classrooms that will use flawed textbooks. Oh, maybe the story's been updated. Starring this year, millions of students across the Lone Star State will use social studies textbooks based on state standards that gloss over slavery and apparently call into question the separation of church and state. The State Board of Education approved these textbooks in November, after months of criticism from history scholars. The board voted to adopt the current social studies standards in 2010. At the time, the New York Times noted that the curriculum will put a conservative stamp on history and economics. We revisited the Texas State Social Studies Curriculum Standards to see how they influence publishers to print what has been called a misleading view of American history. Here are some troubling ideas we found. Students are told to question the legal doctrine of the separation of church and state. Someone needs to uh, channel uh, Thomas Jefferson if that type of thing actually worked. The Texas High School Social Studies Curriculum Standard asked students to compare and contrast the wording of the Constitution's Establishment Clause, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof with the phrase separation of church and state, which originated during later Supreme Court decisions. Don McElroy, a conservative former member of the SBOE, whatever the hell that is, said the students ought to be able to make the comparison because we need to have students compare and contrast the current view of separation of church and state with the actual language of the First Amendment, according to a 2010 post from the Dallas Morning News. Well, I think the Establishment Clause basically states it pretty damn clearly. She'll make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's separation of church and state. And then also, uh, down further, it says slavery and segregation are glossed over. The curriculum standards seem to minimize the darker aspects of American history, such as slavery and, and segregation. When discussing Civil War history, the elementary school standards list sectionalism and states' rights as the primary causes for the conflict before they list slavery, according to a 2011 report from the Fordham Institute, a right-leaning think tank. Black codes, the Ku Klux Klan, or sharecropping, the term Jim Crow never appear, the report says. Incredibly, racial segregation is only mentioned in a passing reference to the 1948 integration of the armed forces. When the standards were originally adopted in 2010, the Texas branch of the NAACP and the League of the United Latin American Citizens uh, filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Education, saying the standards downplayed the Ku Klux Klan and violence against blacks. And then it also says, uh, the cherry on top perhaps, the standards try to vindicate McCarthyism. Glad I'm not a uh, kid or a parent in Texas right now. Lovely state otherwise, I imagine. Never been there. The arid air would probably be good for my allergies. But hey, what more can I say? I don't think it's a big surprise that red states have this kind of garbage or bias uh, in their school textbooks, unfortunately. Uh, we've heard many stories like that uh, time and time again. So that being said, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. But before I go, I'd like to thank Brenda Tackett for liking the Weekend Out Facebook page. And I should have given you that shout-out at the top of the show, but I was trying to do something a little different and just jump right in. So my apologies about that. But thank you, Brenda. Thank you for liking the Facebook page. It means a lot. Oh, yeah, I'd also like to give a shout-out to friend of the show, C-Web, uh, Chris Weber of C-Web Sunday School fame. And, of course, more importantly, uh, now of Paranormal Skeptic Academy fame. Uh, Paranormal Skeptic Academy is a podcast that Chris does now, which focuses on debunking 
um, mostly ghost hunting shows, but uh, things like cryptozoology uh, also. It's a great show. I love listening to it, and I think uh, his fan base is quickly growing. He's starting to do a lot of interviews on YouTube. He did a a live kind of hangout this past week. And he recently revamped his website. I think it's ParanormalSkepticAcademy.com. Or just do a search for Paranormal Skeptic Academy. And he now has an online store. And he's selling some really kind of funny, cool uh, shirts and things like that. Um, So if you want, check out that podcast. It's a great one. Uh, Check out Chris's site and his online store. And as for me, you guys know the drill. You can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, check out the YouTube channel, also listen on Stitcher, check out the archives going all the way back to episode one on Podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Just look for the week in doubt. Um, You can help the show monetarily by using the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page. There's that famous alliteration. Um, There's also some kind of Patreon-esque feature on Podbean now. You can use to support the show. And, uh, and of course, you can also actually become a patron via Patreon for as little as $1 a month. And I think that's everything. So uh, until next week, uh, I almost forgot iTunes. You can uh, subscribe or rate the show through iTunes. Until next week, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.